show everybody welcome to the show I got an awesome show for you today I'm actually fixing the camera angle as I talk to you because that's how professional I am um, so I have more stories today than I normally do so it might take a while uh, or who knows we might be able to breeze through them depending on how long each segment takes but there's a lot of stuff to talk about you got the big news from last night that Matt Gates, the Republican congressman, is um, being investigated for child sex trafficking. So we're going to talk about that. It uh, doesn't look good for him. He went on Tucker Carlson to respond to the allegations. That also didn't go well for him. So it, it, he's a bit of a mess. Um, we're we're going to talk about all this stuff. We have. I'm going to lead with that. And then after that, I have some details on Biden's infrastructure plan. Some more details, I should say. I feel like I've been giving you guys a lot of details periodically as the stuff rolls in. But I have more for you on that. We have Ilhan Omar um, being asked by Mehdi Hassan what what the Democratic strategy was in dealing with the $15 minimum wage, like what the strategy was to win on that front. And the answer is not good. So we'll talk about that. Um, the My Pillow guy is in the show today. Marjorie Taylor Greene is in the show today. I got a million things from all the different um, from all the different outlets, the, the mainstream media outlets. So, like I said, got a big one. Oh, and let me say this as well. Lilith informed me that there were very quite a few people who were 
not happy with the coverage of the CNN clip and the former CDC director who said uh, that he thinks COVID came from a lab. I mean, I didn't find any of the, the counterpoints too convincing, to be honest. So in other words, that's me saying I'm personally still convinced that it came from a lab based on everything that was laid out in that segment. Um, but I will say that Sanjay Gupta himself in the clip says that the World Health Organization doesn't agree with that and that there are many experts who don't agree with that and um, that the, I guess the wet market theory is still the, the leading theory among most of the world scientists. Um, I will say that from my perspective, the thing that really convinces me is the increased transmissibility of this versus something like the flu where it's three to four times, um, you know, more contagious. And that alone is sort of sketchy. But then when I heard there's the virology lab there, and they also happen to study bat, coronavirus, bat coronaviruses specifically, well, that's where I feel like that's a, that's a mighty big coincidence that you have a virology lab in Wuhan. Um, and, you know, that's, that was not the leading theory as to how something could have happened. But listen, again, it's up to your own judgment. If you want to go with the majority of the world scientists and say, hey, uh, I think it was uh, the wet market, I don't think that's a crazy position. Um, but, you know, certainly if I'm not going to cover what the former head of the CDC says and if I'm not going to cover what was on, you know, it's a freaking CNN clip. That's establishment media. So it seems like if, if it got through to them, for me to not cover it almost seems like malpractice, you know, like I could have, there were, I had been quiet about the lab theory for a very long time because I didn't see anything particularly convincing. In other words, I only saw like quacks promoting it. But when you have the former head of the CDC, then it does become a news story. And so I'm definitely going to cover it in that scenario. So I will say that I'm still leaning in the direction of, I think it was in a lab, but you know, if you're not, that's fine. And like I said, you're the best argument that the other side has on this is that, it appears like the majority of the scientists are on that side at this point in time, and the World Health Organization is on that side at this point in time. So, but listen, I think, I think the, you know, the clip stands on its own. Uh, I don't think there was anything I said that was too untoward in there. And, um, I mean, I even, I even repeatedly stressed that I'm not an expert. I don't know what I'm talking about, and I'm a moron. But I, all I could do is give you guys my opinion, and when I saw that clip, you know, you might say I have a low bar in being convinced, but I was definitely convinced when I saw it. So anyway, let's, uh, let's jump into it. I want to talk about Biden's infrastructure first and foremost. Oh, wait, no, no, no. Mm. I want to talk about the Matt Gates thing first and foremost. I don't know why I put number nine for that. That's weird. I thought I pressed zero. All right, never mind. Uh, here we go. Let's get started. There is quite a scandal that unfolded last night. Um, early in the day yesterday, we got the news that Matt Gates, Republican congressman, was considering leaving Congress early for a job at Newsmax, the far-right news organization. Um, and that's weird. Like, it's very rare that Congress people leave early. You know, it's, it's one thing to leave after your term is up, but... To talk about leaving midterm, that's very strange. So right away, there was a few red flags there. Like, really? You're going to leave for a job in media midterm? And by the way, I don't know how stable 
Newsmax is, and I don't know how long term, how viable it is in the long term. So it just it seemed weird, seemed like a risk. Well, come to find out, later on in the same day, we get the news, according to the New York Times, that Matt Gates is being investigated for child sex trafficking. Now, it's actually a lot more complicated than that, because when I hear child sex trafficking, what I think of is like, you literally have like children with duct tape over their mouth and their hands tied, and they're in the back of a van, and you're, you know, selling them into sex slavery or whatever. When I hear child sex trafficking, that's what pops up in my mind. Well, when you read the details of the story, what they really mean is, oh, he technically did child sex trafficking because they say he had a relationship with a 17-year-old girl who was under, that's underage, right? So he had a relationship with a 17-year-old girl, and he would pay for her to, you know, whatever, fly somewhere, stay at a hotel. So that's what they mean. What they really mean is, I guess that would be statutory rape, right, if you have a sexual relationship with somebody who's underage. Um, So she's 17, that's underage. If he had some sort of sexual relationship with her, I guess that'd be statutory rape. But I don't, but that's what I mean. Like the, the story's a little, like there's definitely missing pieces in the story because we don't know what else he's being investigated for and charged with. So this is a huge deal. Now, Matt Gates immediately, when this story breaks, wants to respond. He said a bunch of stuff on Twitter, but then he went on Tucker Carlson. And here was his response there. Just a couple of hours ago, late this afternoon, the New York Times ran a story saying that Florida Congressman Matt Gates is under federal investigation for playing some role in sex trafficking and potentially having a relationship with a 17-year-old girl. There are very few details in major news outlets tonight about this story. We have no background on it at all and not even any very informed questions. Instead, we've invited Congressman Gates on the show to respond to these stories and give us his view of them. Congressman, thanks so much for coming on. I appreciate it. Um, so this is obviously a serious allegation. Tell us what the truth is from your perspective. It is a horrible allegation, and it is a lie. The New York Times is running a story that I have traveled with a 17-year-old woman, and that is verifiably false. People can look at my travel records and see that that is not the case. What is happening is an extortion of me and my family involving a former Department of Justice official. On March 16th, my father got a text message demanding a meeting wherein a person demanded $25 million in exchange for making horrible sex trafficking allegations against me go away. Our family was so troubled by that, we went to the local FBI. And the FBI and the Department of Justice were so concerned about this attempted extortion of a member of Congress that they asked my dad to wear a wire, which he did with the former Department of Justice official. Tonight, I am demanding that the Department of Justice and the FBI release the audio recordings that were made under their supervision and at their direction, which will prove my innocence and that will show that these allegations are true. They're merely intended to try to bleed my family out of money. And this former Department of Justice official tomorrow was supposed to be contacted by my father so that specific instructions could be given regarding the wiring of $4.5 million as a down payment on this bribe. I don't think it's a coincidence that tonight, somehow, the New York Times is leaking this information, smearing me, and ruining the investigation that would likely result in 
of one of the former colleagues of the current DOJ being brought to justice for trying to extort me and my family. Whoa. That sounds like the plot of a dramatic TV show. Uh, By the way, he ends up pissing off Tucker massively in that clip because he goes on to say, remember when you were falsely accused of sex crimes? And Tucker's like, what? So apparently, I didn't know this, but apparently like 20 years ago, somebody accused Tucker of something and, you know, he goes on to say, oh, some mentally ill person said something I never even met the person. Uh, Whatever, I'm not going to get into it, but it's just sort of hilarious that Matt Gates is like machine gunning in every direction to try to save his ass. And he's like, these are false, and everybody who's falsely accused a victim, like when you were falsely accused, Tucker. He's like, but what do you, I invite you on my show, and this is what you say. And um, he even goes on to say at one point, like, Tucker, remember when you and your wife had dinner with me and my wife? And he's like, oh, God, Jesus Christ, stop implicating me. <laughs> stop implicating me in, in whatever the hell's going on in your world. Um, and so another point a lot of people are making is uh, the weird story that broke maybe half a year ago about Nestor. Nestor is uh, Matt Gates' adopted teenage son. And everybody's like, that's a little weird. You have an adopted teenage son. It just seemed very strange. Um, and everybody was like, eyebrow raising at that. Like, something's up. Something seems weird here. This doesn't seem, and, and then he fired, Matt Gates fired back over it and, was like, how dare all of you say this? You know, I, lo- I love my adopted son. He's a huge part of my life. Um, and so, listen, what, uh, what actually occurred here? Like, what's he guilty of? Is he telling the truth about somebody trying to extort him? Um, I mean, obviously, I don't know. And obviously, nobody really knows. Uh, but what I will say is, I was trying to, I was uh, talking about this the other day with somebody, and we're trying to figure out, what Occam's razor is. And to the best of my ability, trying to break down what Occam's razor is, and for those of you who don't know what that is, it's basically this idea that whatever the simplest explanation is, that's the reality. So you never need to make something more complicated or convoluted than what it appears to be in its simplest form. And so Occam's razor, in my opinion, is this. Um, Matt Gates had something going on. Now, I don't know if whatever the thing is, I don't know if it's illegal or if it's like borderline legal, like barely legal, but also just really weird. It's either illegal or like legal, but really weird and something that any person in polite society would want to hide. It's one of those two things. Something's going on with him. Is it, you know, that he dates women who are just legal, possibly? Is it that he dates women that are a year too young? Possible. Is it that he's some sort of, that he's like a swinger and he's, he's got these fetishes and he's part of some underground community? Because apparently he also really defended Katie Hill when she was basically outed as a swinger and then she was slut-shamed and he really came to her defense. Could be that. I don't, I don't know. Something's going on, though. So there's some real thing happening. Now, in my opinion, if the thing is legal, then he should be defended on the grounds that it's legal. But if it's illegal, sorry, son, then you shouldn't be doing it, right? But I, I, actually, I actually think that Occam's razor 
is not just that something's going on with him, but also that he's right that somebody is trying to shake him down for money and hold over his head whatever the thing is. You see what I'm saying? So somebody caught wind of the fact that he's either doing something that's illegal or like barely legal and embarrassing, and they are saying, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to release the goods on everything unless you pay me X amount. And he's given specific dollar amounts. You have to think, he's being so specific in what he's talking about that it's hard for me to imagine he made all of it up. You know what I mean? Um, talking about the wire. Oh, my dad wore a wire to try to bring these people down. This is how much money they're asking for. I'm demanding that they release the tapes and blah, 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 blah. So I actually think Occam's razor is something creepy is going on with him. It's either illegal or like barely legal but embarrassing. And somebody's trying to shake him down for money and threatening to release all of it. So I don't know, but hopefully we get more information on it and we get more information soon. But this is a crazy scandal. I don't know if I've ever seen a scandal this like almost fake seeming. Again, it seems like it's from like a dramatic TV show or something. So there you have it. And for the love of God, I hope somebody checks on Nestor. And, and somebody made a great point. They said in his denial about the 17-year-old, he said like, I've never traveled with the 17-year-old. That's totally made up by the New York Times. He doesn't say, I never had a relationship with the 17-year-old. So they never traveled. His, it's very carefully worded so as to not, I guess, lie about it. I don't know, dog, but I'll leave it up to you guys. I think the best question I could ask you guys is this, the same question I was pondering the other night. What do you think Occam's razor is? Because whatever you think Occam's razor is, is what you think, is what you should think is actually happening here. So I'll leave it up to you. Do you agree with my theory that something's going on, but we don't know exactly what it is, and then somebody is trying to extort him to hold that over his head, shake him down for money to continue hiding it? Is that what you think it is? Because that's the closest I can come to it, but what a weirdo. And oh my God, I feel terrible for Ro Khanna. Ro Khanna the other day was like, yeah, me and Matt Gates. I mean, we worked together on trying to end the wars, and we worked together on, you know, whatever, fill in the blank, I guess, legalizing marijuana, some shit. He's like, yeah, we work together on all that stuff, and he's my friend, and we hang out. Oh, sweet Jesus, Ro. Oh, God, Ro. Ro, what are you doing? They're going to come investigate you now, bro. <laughs> and Tucker, too. They're going to go investigate Tucker. I love, by the way, after the Tucker clip, I don't have this part queued up, but after the Tucker clip, he does this hilarious, like, end of interview commentary where he's like, well, that was the weirdest interview I've ever done, and I don't think we learned anything. I think, I, think, I think Gates sort of pissed off Tucker by bringing up, like, whatever accusations there were against Tucker and by bringing up the fact that Tucker and his wife went to dinner with Gates and his wife or something. And Tucker, by the way, he was like, I don't even know what you're talking about. He said that in the clip. Like, I don't remember that at all. Bro, let me find out there's some, and this is probably real as fuck, there's, like, some creepy underground swinger shit going on in D.C. among elites. That is the last place I would ever want to be. That's for sure. Okay. Next. Let's talk about Joe Biden's infrastructure plan. Joe Biden's infrastructure plan.
So we have some of the details of Joe Biden's infrastructure plan. This just came out. So this is according to the Washington Post. The White House is expected to unveil a $2.25 trillion infrastructure package, $650 billion to rebuild U.S. infrastructure, $400 billion to care for the elderly and disabled, $300 billion for housing infrastructure, $300 billion to revive U.S. manufacturing. Now, another fact that we just learned about this is um, they try to pay for, I don't know if it's all of it or close to all of it, through tax hikes on businesses, and that's part of the same plan. So I guess they're putting together um, some of the tax reform that they want to do and some of the infrastructure stuff, and it's a lot more deficit neutral of a plan than anybody expected it to be. Um, but really, the, the whole point of, of giving you this information and talking about it is to say the following. This is pathetically less than what the number needs to be. Now, you know, Biden has actually uh, been jovial behind the scenes at the fact that he's being told by many advisors and people in his inner circle that he's been a lot more bold than Obama. And to be fair, that's totally true. Barack Obama listened to Larry Summers, neoliberal economist, terrible, wrong about so many things. Listen to Larry Summers when Larry Summers said uh, for the stimulus package during the Great Recession that, no, you want the price tag to be under a trillion because over a trillion is scary, it's too big of a number, and it's not a good idea. You know, what did he say? Larry Summers is the guy who said about stimulus checks, $2,000 stimulus checks, oh, that'll overheat the economy. My ass cheeks, it'll overheat the economy. People need that money, idiot. So Obama listened to Larry Summers, and his stimulus, I forget what the number was. I feel like it was $787 billion for Obama's stimulus package during the Great Recession. So Biden comes in. Obviously, we have COVID. We have the economic downturn. And they do a $1.9 trillion stimulus package. Um, and it includes a bunch of stuff, the child tax credit, saving pensions for over a million Americans, a lot of stuff in there. Um, so he was patting himself on the back like, yeah, I did way better than Obama. I'm way more bold than Obama. Apparently, that's something that Biden likes to hear behind the scenes. So he proposes $2.25 trillion. To put this in perspective for you, everything, Joe Manchin is, was asking for $4 trillion in infrastructure spending. So Joe Biden is to the right of Joe Manchin on the issue of infrastructure. Joe Biden is to the right of the most conservative Democrat, bar none. If I remember correctly, his voting record was like 50% with Donald Trump during the Trump years. He was half agreeing with Trump, Manchin was. And so you're only doing $2.25 trillion. Why are you doing this? Either ideologically he want, likes this smaller number, or he's doing it to try to get the Republicans on board. None of the Republicans are going to vote for your infrastructure package. None of them. I'm going to predict it now. You literally won't get a single one. Not one. And you need nine if you're going to get it through regular order and keep the filibuster as it is. You need nine, and you're going to get zero. The best I could ever see them getting is like one or two, but I really think they're going to get none. Because they're going to say, oh, my God. They're going to still say it's too much money, even though it's not even close to enough money. And they're also going to say, oh, I disagree in principle with any tax hikes on anybody who's either wealthy or, or or on corporations. So you're not going to get any. So what are you doing? Negotiating against yourself. Again, unless he ideologically leans more in this direction. To put this in perspective for you again, 
Joe Manchin wants $4 trillion. There was a report that came out in 2017. The amount of money you would have needed to spend on infrastructure to sufficiently upgrade it as of 2017, $4.7 trillion. And that's adequately upgraded. That's not what I'm in favor of and what I think everybody should be in favor of, which is take our infrastructure from a grade of C to a grade of A++. I want us to have the best infrastructure in the world by far, and I don't even want the second country to be close. I want to do what is effectively a new New Deal in this country and make us the envy of the world and create millions of jobs in the process and make this country beautiful from sea to shining sea. And so if you were to do that, you would need to spend way, way, way more than this. Really, $4.7 trillion is just the beginning of the conversation because that's only adequately it, and that's as back, far back as 2017. That's not enough. Bernie Sanders' plan, by the way, when he was running for office, when you actually tally it all up, it's effectively about $16 trillion in infrastructure spending. $16 trillion. You have some of the left flank of the Democrats in the Senate are calling for $10 trillion. $10 trillion they're calling for. And that's, you know, a lot of that is uh, they want a lot more spending on, like, climate-related stuff and infrastructure vis-a-vis climate stuff. So... I mean, this, again, this is typical corporate Democrat. He's coming in with something already massively watered down. Then it's going to get watered down even more. Then the Republicans are still going to say no to it. And so then what are you going to do? What are you going to do? I want nothing more than for Joe Biden to wake up and realize these games are useless. I want him to either abolish the filibuster or reform the filibuster to make it the talking filibuster again, or... They can just change the reconciliation rules, too, by the way. That's another thing that we learned the other day, is that you could keep the filibuster. If, you want to keep, if you're so you know, stuck on keeping the filibuster, okay, just make it so that you can do, like, unlimited reconciliation bills. Or at least up the number from, I think it's two now, and they can make it three, but come up with new rules or you can do ten of them, whatever. Because, I mean, it's really, the radical position is to say you need 60 votes to pass anything in a 100-person body because that means it's minority rule. It should be 51, so that it's, you know, a more representative democracy. So, I mean, again, this is way too little. You should be coming in proposing, at the beginning of the negotiation, fuck, you should take Bernie's position of like 16 trillion or 15 trillion, and then from there, you know, maybe it gets whittled down to 10, or maybe it gets whittled down to the 2017 number of about 5 trillion, but... This is, this is the point. This is not serious. This is not serious. And all the comparisons to FDR are pathetic and ridiculous. Crystal Ball made a great point the other day um, where she said, what the Democrats stand for is take whatever Bernie is proposing, water it down massively, and do that. And so they want to fancy themselves like, we're bold. We're like modern-day FDR. But no, they're really like 80% Ronald Reagan, 20% FDR. And there's not much you can say about that. You can say it's better than 100% Reagan. Congratulations, you're better than elected Republicans. Lowest bar of all time. But really, I think the thing that's so frustrating is that they are still 80% Reagan, 20% FDR, and they want credit as if they're 100% FDR. And, you know, this is, this is comical. I think this plan is comical. It's way too little. All the experts will tell you that. And um, yet again, you're going to run into a brick wall anyway, so why not swing for the fences? 
Now we're going to go to Chucky Schumer. Oh, good. Oh, good. Oh, my good. Here we go, Chucky Schumer talking about the minimum wage. Oh, good. New, Chuck Schumer eyes a second shot at raising the minimum wage through reconciliation, this time in the infrastructure package. So when you read the article from Ryan Grin at The Intercept, um, he says, well, Chuck Schumer is arguing, well, now if we bring it back up to the parliamentarian, maybe the parliamentarian will say, oh, it's okay, it can go in the infrastructure package because the infrastructure package is more closely aligned with stuff involving wages. Oh, good. So in other words, Chuck Schumer is actually not eyeing a second shot at raising the minimum wage to reconciliation. Chuck Schumer is hoping that the parliamentarian is going to change their mind because the nature of the bill is different from the COVID stimulus bill. Why would you think that that's the case? So anyway, listen, here's the point. What's happening here? I think Chuck Schumer is just trying to do the hollow PR move of like, oh, I swear I'm still fighting to increase the minimum wage. Oh, good. I think that's what he's trying to do. I think he's trying to be like, everybody give me credit as if I'm fighting to raise the minimum wage, even though I'm not even close to fighting for raising the minimum wage. They say in the article he's going to leave it up to the parliamentarian again. So listen, just to put that in perspective and context, There's been a number of times where Republicans have heard from the parliamentarian, oh, you can't do X, Y, or Z through reconciliation. You know what Republicans have done? Fire the parliamentarian and bring in one who says, yeah, you can do that through reconciliation. They just look for the answer that they want, and then they get it, and then they pass it. Welfare reform was passed through budget reconciliation. The $1.7 trillion tax cut law was passed reconciliation. Actually, I don't know if it's a $1.7 trillion tax cut law. I think that's the amount that was added to the deficit from Trump's tax tax cuts for the rich in corporations. They just say, oh, you think we can't do this? Okay, you're fired. We're going to bring in somebody who says you can do this. That's what you do if you actually really care and want to pass the thing in question. That's what you do. But I don't think Schumer cares, and I don't think he really wants to pass the thing in question. He just wants the credit as if he's fighting for it And then when it's inevitably slapped down, he wants to say, oh, blame them, oh, God. Blame the staffer who we hired, who has zero power. Parliamentarian sounds all official and sounds real and like they have power. They don't have power. They have no power at all. Kamala Harris could have overridden the parliamentarian anyway, or they could have fired one and brought in a new one. So I really think what's happening here is that Schumer's sort of playing the media a little bit. And because he's doing this on other issues, too. He's doing this on student loan debt relief. He just released a video with Elizabeth Warren and I think Menendez. And they were talking about, oh, get in contact with Joe Biden. Call Joe Biden. Write Joe Biden and tell him to eliminate student loan debt. Oh, good. And he says, I even asked Joe Biden. And Joe Biden says, okay, have people reach out to me. It's okay. So you're not, you're not actually fighting. If that's the case, if Joe Biden says, yeah, go ahead, send me the letters, and you go out there and say, send in the letters, you have power, Chuck. So what really needs to happen is you need to try to eliminate student loan debt, maybe do something about it, get Manchin and Cinema 
on board, you know, whip your caucus, again, do your job, actually fight for it, use carrots and sticks, play politics, um, or do whatever the hell you can to actually convince Joe Biden that he needs to do it through executive order, because he can do it through executive order. But you're not actually doing that. Again, I think it's the virtue signal. I think it's like, hey, give us credit as if we're fighting to raise the minimum wage. Give us credit as if we're fighting to uh, eliminate student loan debt. But we're not going to do it. And when we don't do it, I still want the credit as if I tried, and I want you to blame others other than me. But I really think it's deeply disingenuous and deeply dishonest, because I don't think he really wants it. I don't think he really wants it. Because the idea like, oh, he's eyeing a second shot at raising the minimum wage reconciliation, they could just do it. He would have to, again, get the eight Democrats who strayed to fall in line with a carrot or stick approach. And he can do that. He can whip the votes. He can effectively force them. He would have to do that. But instead of the article saying that's what he plans on doing, the article says he's going to ask the parliamentarian again for permission, and he thinks the parliamentarian will change their mind. When... In the article, they say it's very possible that the parliamentarian literally just copy and paste the same thing they said the last time that she said no to reconciliation for the minimum wage. She just copy and paste that and put it for this bill as well. So this is the problem that we deal with with Democrats all the time, is that they really are in many instances a wolf in sheep's clothing, where the Republicans will tell you up front, I don't agree with you and go fuck yourself, and I'm never going to be for raising the minimum wage, and that's the end of the conversation a lot of the Democrats will pretend like they are in favor of it, and then their actions will not back that up at all, because they're not in favor of it. They want to get the credit as if they're going to fight for it, and then they don't fight for it. So they'll lie to you and gaslight you and act like, I don't know what you're talking about, I'm on your side. Look, look at the article. The article says I'm trying to raise it again through reconciliation. And again, anybody who doesn't know the details of how this stuff works, they're going to be convinced. They're going to think all the Democrats want to raise the minimum wage. And, oh, what are they going to do? They just ran into opposition they couldn't overcome. No, they haven't. They didn't even really try. So it's the hollow, empty virtue signal party where they pretend like they're on your side and then they don't do enough. So uh, this, is, this is actually more frustrating than if they just didn't even bring it up again. Because, again, they want the credit without actually doing the work and fighting for it. And that's the worst of all worlds. We have a similar segment that we're about to do now involving... Ilhan Omar, and this is very depressing. You're going to see why this is very depressing. Ilhan Omar went on Mehdi Hassan's new show, and um, got to be honest with you guys, man, this clip really made me sad. It really made me sad because the biggest issue I've had with progressives in Congress is that they're like a chicken with their head cut off. They have no idea what they're doing. They have zero strategy, zero plan, zero spine, and it manifests in very pathetic ways. Like they look like children. They don't know what they're doing. They don't have no idea what they're doing. Um, And listen, that critique that I'm making is fundamentally different and distinct from people who argue they're, they're all corrupt. No, that's actually not the case. There's, there's plenty of, progressive Congress people who don't take any corporate PAC money, who don't take any big money. They really only raise through small dollar donations. They're by definition not corrupt. So then what's their issue? Their issue is they don't know what the fuck they're doing and they're incredibly weak. 
That's the issue. So my critique is fundamentally different from a critique that many others make, and I just want to be clear about that. But having said that, I literally cannot say enough about how pathetic and weak and sad they are and how easy it is to get them to be fractured and factionalized and useless. Leadership plays them like a fiddle on a regular basis. So here's Ilhan Omar being asked by Mehdi Hassan about the strategy to get a $15 minimum wage through. And look at her non-answer answer. The shift to the big picture. It was reported by Politico that you were part of a Congressional Progressive Caucus delegation that recently met with White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain. What asks did you make, and what did you say, what do you say to your critics on the left who say progressives in Congress, like yourself, the squad, the CPC, haven't pushed Biden hard enough on issues like the $15 minimum wage, universal health care, the filibuster? Well, it is because that we have been pushing with the, uh, that the, you know, American Rescue Plan um, is seen to be the most progressive uh, policy in decades. Um, we certainly understand that there was a failed uh, strategy, not by the progressives in, in Congress, because we put $15 in the package, um, by, by the administration. I think the, their early signaling um, that that could be negotiated out and it might not stick um, as, as, as part of the final package uh, really, I think, endangered the ability for us to pass $15. And so when we were in that meeting, we pushed for a strategy to get $15 minimum wage. We pushed for a strategy um, to, to pass the, the agenda that the administration ran on, that the Democrats agree on, whether it is, you know, passing sensible uh, gun laws, dealing with our immigration um, uh, crisis, and, and, and all of the things that we all care about. What we walked away uh, from that conversation with is an understanding uh, that there is a limited uh, window of opportunity uh, for us to push these pieces of legislation. There are members in the Senate within the Democratic Party that are certainly not there yet uh, on the priority pieces of legislation that we have, uh, and it's going to be up to the administration yeah. to come up with a strategy to push them because progressives in the House are constantly yeah. told to get in line uh, and to push policies that are going to have an impact on people's lives, that's what those Democrats in the Senate need to be told, and that's what it's going to take. That was a terrible answer. So let me break it down for you. Um, first, she starts by saying, well, listen, the American Rescue Plan is the most progressive policy in decades. You are supposed to be the left flank of Congress. You're not supposed to just cheerlead the plan that originally was supposed to have $2,000 checks. They reduced it to $1,400 checks. And the other big promise was the $15 minimum wage, and that was taken out. So for you to do the cheerleading for this watered-down plan means the left flank is okay with the watered-down plan. No. The whole reason you're there is to be the hardliner and to say, no, this didn't have the $2,000 checks. This didn't have the $15 minimum wage. That's unacceptable. And by the way, another phenomenal critique of the American Rescue Plan is that it's a one-shot of adrenaline. There's nothing that's recurring in there. Nothing. 
so it doesn't last. Things that last are stuff like Social Security, Medicare. Those are the real accomplishments. An infrastructure deal that builds roads which last generations. That lasts. This is a one-shot of adrenaline. And her response is, when asked about why haven't you been more critical and why haven't you fought for your priorities, she says, it's the most progressive policy in decades. Hate that part. Then she goes on to say, well, look, it was a failed strategy, but not by progressives because we put it in the package. So in other words, what she's alluding to is the $15 minimum wage actually passed the House in the American Rescue Package. In the Senate, they took it out. So her point is, blame the Senate. Yeah, but then when they took it out and it came back to you, you voted for it without the $15 minimum wage. That's a horrible excuse because then you voted for it without the minimum wage. You needed to do exactly what Joe Manchin does. When Joe says, I'm not going to vote for it if it's not what I want, then the administration has to bend to his will. If you have more Democrats in the House that are not going to vote for the bill, if it doesn't have the $15 minimum wage in there, then you're going to get the $15 minimum wage because you're putting the pressure on Biden and Kamala to then force the eight Democrats in the Senate who are against the $15 minimum wage, you're forcing them to actually do politics and say, listen, you got to do it because this thing needs to pass and we have more people who aren't going to vote for it if it doesn't have the $15 minimum wage. So what do you want? What do you need? We'll do carrots or sticks. You know, I could be your best friend. I could be your worst enemy. I'll give you some extra money for your, for, you know, your state or whatever, uh, you know, uh, what do you want? You want a position in the administration? Uh, we will make it work if you vote for this bill with a $15 minimum wage. We'll make it work. But if you don't, you're my enemy. I'm going to campaign against you. You're going to lose your seat. It, you have to force them to actually play politics, but they didn't do that because they don't, they don't want to, if they vote down the bill, then be blamed and have the media dislike them. That's what, they don't want the media to come after them because of their fee-fees, and they'll feel like, oh, I, I only love being adored. And so this is unacceptable that the media is coming after me. But change is never easy. You're going to have smear merchants. You're going to have people making terrible arguments against you. But if you're standing on principle, and you are if you're fighting for the $15 minimum wage, take the fight on. I want to have that debate. The media is going to come after me because I'm fighting for workers to make a living wage? Fuck off. I'll take that fight on all day, every day, son. The media is wrong, and I am right. Bring it on. Then... Um, she says, the administration, so what she says is, she passes the buck and says, well, the administration said early on that maybe we'll take out the $15 minimum wage, and that was the mistake, so it's their fault. Here's where she's wrong on this. Ilhan, that wasn't a mistake. You want to know why Joe Biden said that early on? It's because he doesn't want the $15 minimum wage in there. So your problem is treating these corporate Democratic leaders as if they're genuine allies in the fight for the things, the things that you want. She even goes on to say that literally. She says, look, Democrats agree on these things. We all care about these things. But they don't, Ilhan. They don't all agree with this. They're not all for the $15 minimum wage. They're not all for the $2,000 checks. They're not all for universal health care. They're not all for the policies that really define what it means to be on the left. In fact, the corporate Democrats are crystal clear in that they're against those things. They're neoliberal corporatists. They want to split the difference between Democratic ideas and Republican ideas. That's, the whole, that's triangulation. That's the New Deal Democrats. This is the whole model of the Democratic Party since Bill Clinton. So to not know that or to know that and then mislead about it, it's unacceptable. You were put there to fight for these things, 
and you didn't fight for it, and now you're passing the buck and saying, well, Joe Biden told me that, hey, we'll take out the $15 minimum wage maybe, so he shouldn't have said that it's his fault. But you're assuming that he actually wants the $15 minimum wage in there. He doesn't. So you needed to treat him like he's an enemy and use your pressure on him. It's not just Republican bad, Democrat good, but that appears to be the operating system that they're working with, that, oh, if we can't get it, it's just because even though everybody wanted it, there were some missteps, and what are we going to do? No, that's not the way it is. And then finally, um, she says very explicitly, for the Senate Democrats that aren't there yet, meaning like Manchin and Cinema, it's on the administration to push them. And we're always told as progressives, get in line, get in line, get in line. It's the same fundamental problem. It's not on the administration to push them, Ilhan, because they don't agree with you. So it's on you and the progressive caucus, and not really the progressive caucus because more than half of them are frauds. It's on you and the justice Democrats, who I know are not corrupt. It's on you guys to not be weak and afraid of your own shadow and band together and vote as a block and come out there and say, we're not voting for this bill unless it has $15 minimum wage in there. And you want to cry about it? Go cry about it. I'm up here fighting for the workers. I'm fighting for the workers. I don't care if the bill goes down. That's on you. That's not on me. Because it can pass with the $15 minimum wage. So put it back in. Put it back in. That's what you need to do. It needs to be the Justice Democrats voting as a block. I want to see like a 12-vote block of actual left-wing Congress people where you're strong and you fight and you're not afraid to take the incoming fire from Democratic leadership who's going to hate you. They already hate you, but they'd be more open about the fact that they hate you and the media. If you're not going to vote as a block and you're not going to throw your weight around and you're not going to block stuff, then I literally don't know why we sent you there. I don't know. Because I know. I was a co-founder of Justice Democrats. I know what the idea was. The idea was for you to actually fight. And you're not doing it. And that's your own fault. That's your own fault. Because you're under this insane notion that, well, it was on Biden to fight for the $15 minimum wage. He doesn't even agree with it. Of course he's not going to fight for it. You guys need to flex your power and your muscle. Go learn about how the Tea Party operated. That's what we wanted from you. John Boehner, the Republican leader during the Tea Party era, hated the Tea Party. Why? Because they made his life a living hell. They said, we're not going to fucking fall in line for your dumbass. We hate you just as much as we hate Pelosi. We're going to get what we want from you. That's what you need to do. Learn to hate Pelosi, learn to hate the media, learn to hate Kamala Harris and Joe Biden. They're not your friends. And listen, at the end of the day, even though I know as a matter of fact that these people are not corrupt, if at the end of the day they get duped into letting the corrupt people win, then again, I don't know why we sent you there. You're just wasting our time and and taking all of the progressive energy out of the room and laying down on a chalk outline of yourself and pretending you're heroes in the process. That's unacceptable. Okay. Next. After this one, we'll take a quick break. Stuart Barney, also known as the most pompous man on TV, he, um, this is wild, he was doing his show, and he was perhaps a little bit too honest 
he argued that a media outlet should actively coordinate a smear campaign against a politician that he doesn't like. I just think that maybe Mr. Bezos should do something about the Washington Post, which he owns, lock, stock, and barrel, okay. which vigorously supports. However, that, as you know, that is separate from Amazon. That is a private investment. He's got control of the Washington Post. If he doesn't like Bernie and Elizabeth Warren, Make a change in your editorial policy at the Washington Post for heaven's sake. Oh, so you're saying you? um, use the Washington Post to go after sure. Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren if you Why were not? appointed. Why not? Why is the Washington Post the most outrageous leftist organization in America, with a few other exceptions, and it's owned by Bezos, who's, ha who's with Bernie Sanders having a go at him? Right. Come on. Come on. Yeah. Now, keep in mind... The reason why there's a fight between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and Ro Khanna and some Democrats and executives at Amazon is because workers are having to piss in bottles, drivers, Amazon drivers are having to piss in bottles and shit in bags. And uh, Amazon is actively trying to quell a vote for a union in Bessemer, Alabama, an Amazon union in Bessemer, Alabama. And so they're treating their workers terribly. And there's this all-out propaganda effort. And so Bernie and some Democratic politicians are making the case that we need to hold these oligarchs accountable and hold Amazon accountable and have better labor standards and have the PRO Act and have unions. And you had executives at Amazon going after Bernie saying, we actually do what Bernie, Bernie only talks about. He's always talked about a $15 minimum wage. We actually implemented a $15 minimum wage. He has it in Vermont. He's not the governor of Vermont. He's a U.S. senator. What, what does that even mean? And, by the way, as Ro Khanna pointed out, the only reason Amazon pays $15 an hour is because of Bernie Sanders and Ro Khanna, because they threatened Bezos with the Stop Bezos Act, and Bezos was like, all right, yeah, and anyway, 15 Yeah, totally. I totally want $15 an hour. Why? Because he was scared that that bill would catch on because the bill was framed from an intelligent right-wing perspective where it was like, hey, if we make Amazon pay $15 an hour, it reduces the size of the social safety net and shrinks the size of government. Don't you want that, conservatives? So Bezos feared that Republicans would hop on board, because Republicans also don't like Amazon for other reasons. And so he's like, all right, all right, I'll pay $15 an hour. And so he started paying $15 an hour. So Bernie and Ro Khan are the reason why that happened, and they're out there taking credit like they decided one day, because they're such nice people, that that's what they should do. Ridiculous, ridiculous, ridiculous. Um, so that was the genesis of the fight. What Varney is saying is, hey, I don't like that Bernie Sanders is taking shots at this billionaire oligarch. The billionaire oligarch should fight back. How should he fight back? Well, he owns the Washington Post. I love how Varney's guest is trying to hide the ball a little bit, where she's like, oh, wait, 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 wait. I'm, but uh, Washington Post is separate from Amazon. Washington Post is separate from Amazon, totally different entity. And Varney doesn't get the hint, and he's like, yeah, but Bezos has control of the Washington Post as well. Thank you. So this is Varney going, yeah, he's an oligarch billionaire, and oligarch billionaires can do oligarch billionaire stuff. They're really in control of everything. Thank you, Stuart. Thank you for making the left-wing argument for us. That's exactly what we've been saying for a very long time, that indeed when you have oligarch billionaires, they're oligarch billionaires, and they control a hell of a lot more than you think they do. And they're the people who really control society. Corporations and billionaires, these, they're really in control. So this is Varney saying, why doesn't Bezos just used the Washington Post to smear Bernie relentlessly. It's what I would do. 
I got news for you, Stuart. You're just a little bit undereducated on this topic because that's exactly what the Washington Post does. Don't you guys remember? I forget if it was 2016 or the 2020 race, but the Washington Post ran 16 anti-Bernie Sanders stories in a 24-hour period. 16 in a 24-hour period. And every last one of them was beyond absurd. Where they lie, they put out misinformation, they smear. So, Stuart, the Washington Post is already doing the exact same thing that you're telling them they should do. But perhaps Stuart Barney just wants it to be more aggressive and more over the top and more obvious. Because, you know, Stuart Barney has never met a champion of working people that he doesn't despise. And Bernie Sanders is the best example of it. All right, guys, let's take a break. When we come back, I have the My Pillow guy. We're going to show you a video of the My Pillow guy. Sort of disturbing, but I also can't wait to show you. So stay right there.
All right, we're back, everybody. We are back like a yak. We are back like a fat yak. How about that? All right. Where were we? Oh, the MyPillow guy. Here we go. The MyPillow dude, um, I think his name is Mike, Mike Lindell. Mike, Mike Lindell, I think is his name. Um, anyway, this guy, I kind of feel bad for this guy. I kind of feel bad doing this segment. CEO of the company, MyPillow. Um, he's been on a bunch of infomercials and stuff. He's now a right-wing darling because he's one of the biggest Trump fans you've ever seen in your life. Um, really interesting guy, super religious, and also he's, uh, he used to be a crack addict. Now, he went on Steve Bannon's podcast, or as Trump would call it, Sloppy Steve Bannon's podcast. And um, he had this moment where even Sloppy Steve was like, what? So let's take a look and then we'll discuss. What I'm talking about, Steve, is what I have been doing since January 9th. All the evidence I have, everything is going to go before the Supreme Court and the election of 2020 is going bye-bye. I, it was an attack by other country communism coming in. I don't know what they're going to do with what after they pull it down, but it's... Hang on a second. Donald hang, Trump will be back ahead. in office in August. Donald Trump will be back in office by August. You almost have to give credit to the QAnon people because they just, they can't let it go, and they keep moving the goalposts. They've now, what are we on, like the fourth or fifth new date that Trump is going to take office? There was a, a story that blew up, went viral. It was Joe Biden was walking in the front of the White House. I guess he was either going back in the White House or going on the helicopter to go to, you know, fly on Air Force One or whatever. And uh, he's walking up to a group of reporters, and there's this glitch in one of the cameras, and you see his hand is, like, over a microphone, even though it's behind a microphone. And um, people use that as evidence to say, Joe Biden's not really president. That's a green screen. They're doing, like, a wag the dog type scenario where they're pretending he's president. And I don't know the way the rest of the conspiracy theory goes. Do they say Kamala Harris is actually running the scenes, or do they say Trump is secretly behind the scenes running the show? I don't know, man, but I'm, I am absolutely amazed at this kind of thinking. It's like religious or cult-like thinking, but it gets to the point where they just try to override all objective reality, and they throw all empiricism out the window. And it's a wild thing to watch. It really is. Because, you know, it's like, it's a case study in deviant psychology is what it is. Because, and, you know, any other normal human would be embarrassed to say something like that knowing that it's not going to come true. Oh, by August, Trump will be in office. Even Trump doesn't believe that. Of course Trump doesn't believe that. What are you doing, bro? So, listen, I don't know what's going on, but... I think the extreme religiosity is getting to him. He might think he's hearing voices of God or something, or he might be back on the sauce or whatever. But when even sloppy Steve Bannon is like, whoa, 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 and uh, even Trump is not on board with your conspiracies, time to give up, bro. 
time to give up. But the real question is how many of these people are out there that are actually like, these idiots don't even know Trump's going to be back in office in August. Morons. How many of them are out there? That's a, that's a real question. I want to know how bad it is. Is it 1% of the population? One out of every 100? I don't think it's that many. But, it, you know, it's funny when you watched some of the people who were queuing on people have the realization that it was bullshit and what they were saying wasn't going to come to pass. You saw it on a lot of message boards. There were things that went viral I saw on Twitter where people have the realization where some people are still holding on to the dream and others are like, wake up, none of this shit happened. Partly feel bad for them, partly thoroughly enjoy it for the entertainment value. Okay, next. So this clip that I'm about to show you is crazy. I think this is actually Ted Cruz recording this on his cell phone. But what happens is he's touring some border facilities, and you have a Biden official jump in to try to effectively stop Cruz from recording and watch the back and forth. certainly even worse because it's a pandemic, that is, that's a disaster in the making. I mean, it's already a disaster. But there's a lot to say about this. So first, let's focus on this Biden administration official. Um, She says, please respect the dignity of the people. Please respect the rules. She keeps bringing up dignity and respect. She says, this is not a zoo. And yeah, I mean, the response to that is like, so why are you treating it like a zoo? Why are you not treating them with dignity and respect as you're talking about dignity and respect? Why are you not respecting the rules? Because, again, the rules are to have way fewer people than that in there, you know? So this hall monitor reaction when obviously the issue, the, the egregious issue is not that it's being recorded. The egregious issue is that it's happening. But she was told by the higher-ups, don't let any of them take video or pictures or whatever, and thankfully they did. So it's just, that's a gross video all around. Now the other, and by the way, that woman strikes me as the type of person who during the Trump administration would be railing against kids in cages. And now you have kids in cages and she's playing cover up for the kids in cages because Biden's president. Anyway, now that gets me to Ted Cruz. 
Ted Cruz, just like we covered the video the other day, the Sean Hannity segment on this, Ted Cruz suddenly, you know, his heart bleeds for kids in cages at the border. When under the Trump administration, the response was like, hey, Snowflake, get over it. If you don't want to be a kid in a cage, don't come here illegally. So, I mean, I know that this point is tired, but it's also just the most blatant and obvious example I've ever seen, which is why I keep making the point, which is the hypocrisy is stunning to me. It's stunning. Because nobody, nobody is telling you what they actually believe, what they think, what the solutions are, what the long-term issues are, what the short-term issues are. Nobody's talking about that at all on the Democratic side or the Republican side. Everybody is just playing partisan, tribal, hack, political football. And so now the Republicans think they could score points by going, oh, my God, the border, the border, the border. So now they suddenly have broken hearts for kids in cages. And the Democrats, who are screaming about it under Trump, are now like, so, I mean, what, the, what, what happened was, and the thing was, is that we was trying to fix it with Craig and them down by the Safeway, but we don't even know what was going to happen. So, yeah, I mean... Listen, all I could do in these segments is show you what's happening, give you the response from the Republicans, the response from the Democrats. They're both colossal hypocrites and tell you my own opinion, which is, again, you have to get to the root of the problem. And the root of the problem when it comes to this immigration crisis is effectively the drug war. The drug war has destroyed many of these countries and people are fleeing from crime and violence and uh, desperate, hopeless lives. So you have to end the drug war. You have to legalize, tax, and regulate drugs. Put the cartels out of business. Um, beyond that, trade policy also, you know, uh, got us to this point. Beyond that, keep it real, U.S. meddling in Central and South America got us to this point. I mean, we're doing it right now. We're doing it right now. We're doing it. Bolivia, Venezuela, you name it. CIA meddling in these countries has effectively helped ruin them. So that's another issue. So now are there other problems that are not U.S. related? Yes. But if we hold up our end of the bargain, stop meddling in these countries, fix our trade policy, end the drug war, um, have some sort of you know, monetary assistance slash reparations or whatever, then so many fewer people would be leaving these countries. People, like, people don't really think much about this, but it takes a lot for somebody to want to leave everything they've ever known. People don't make that decision willy-nilly. And so obviously these people are desperate. So you've got to get to the root of the problem. Now, I will admit beyond that, I don't know what to do. I didn't know what to do under Trump. I don't know what to do now. How do you handle this? How do you process this, this high number of people coming in? What's the correct approach? What are the correct systems to put into place? These aren't questions that an idiot YouTuber can answer. These are questions that experts should answer. And all I know is that there should be a much better process, a much more streamlined process, a much safer process. Um, but when you're dealing with such a large influx, it's hard to create the infrastructure to have that be the case. But, I mean, that's really no excuse. So I don't have the answers, but I know it ain't this. So the short-term answers, I think, are more difficult to solve. The long-term answers are what I already described, and I think those are easier to solve. Okay. Now we move on to Marjorie Taylor Greene. Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, um, 
went viral, Right Wing Watch found this video. Here she is talking about the idea of COVID passports. They want you to be required to have something called a COVID passport. And this, this would mandate your ability to be able to travel, your ability to be able to go to events, your ability to be able to buy and sell. And I asked the question earlier today, is this something like Biden's mark of the beast? Because that is really disturbing and um, not good. Oh, if you're going to come into the football game or the baseball game or the concert, you need your vaccine passport because we're trying to do a good job to keep everyone safe. This is what the Biden administration is trying to talk to these private companies into doing. Well, let's analyze that. You see, it's still the same thing. It's still fascism or communism, whatever you want to call it, but it's, in, it's coming from private companies. So I have a term for that. I call it corporate communism. They want you to be required to have some... Oops. Cut it off at the wrong time. So it's both fascism and communism, but it's corporate communism. I... God, these people are annoying. Let me just take words that I think sound really bad and really scary and just say them, and that'll be my explanation. This is fascism. This is communism. Shut the fuck up. She's probably never read a political definition in her life. It's, it's Biden's mark of the beast. Oh, great. So we have ridiculous uh, political terminology you're using to define it. And also now it's from Satan. It's from the devil. It's from it's Biden's mark of the beast, which is this biblical thing. Uh, fucking hyperbolic drama queen shit much? Yeah, I think so. Um, so the first response is simple. If companies were to start mandating COVID vaccines to go do shit, you know what that would be called? Capitalism. A free marketplace. That's what that would be called. It would be companies deciding on their own to implement a policy. That is what you argue for in every other context. When the government wants to step in and regulate, say, hey, you can't do child labor, hey, you can't pollute like that, conservatives generally, especially the elected conservatives, say, no, I've been bribed by said corporation, so I'm on their side, and I think they should be able to pollute, and I think they should be able to use child labor, and I'm against government intervention in the free marketplace. Well, in the scenario that she's describing, that would be the free marketplace. That would be the individual companies deciding we'd feel safer if people had the COVID vaccine to come into our stores. So that's what we're going to demand. So in other words, it's her own ideology and there's an outcome attached to it that she doesn't like. What she would want really is like the federal government to mandate that companies cannot demand COVID vaccines to have service, which would be a form of regulation, just a form of regulation in the direction that she prefers. So that's, that's the first thing. The second thing is this, that shit ain't going to happen. You're not going to have, oh, you need a COVID vaccine to get into whatever, fill in the blank with any store, any store. You think all the stores out there are going to be like, you need a COVID vaccine. No, because they want business and there's going to be plenty of people who don't get the COVID vaccine. And so they're not going to rule out, like, will there be the occasional business or, or gathering or whatever that say, yes, you need a COVID vaccine to come in? Sure, sure, Absolutely. But is it going to be widespread where it's like everything in the economy? No, it's not. It's not going to be that. And beyond that, this idea. Now, I don't, I don't have a position on the COVID passports. If I'm being honest with you guys, I haven't really thought much about it. But 
the idea that this is also some sort of new thing, the passport idea specifically, I really don't think all the individual companies are going to decide on their own that everybody needs a vaccine to come into their store. If you have a mask, that'll suffice. You know what I mean? Like mask, social distancing, they'll let you get away with that. You don't need the vaccine. But um, for COVID passports, guys, when immigrants come into this country, they need to get their vaccines. It's mandatory that they get their vaccines. Would Marjorie Taylor Greene be on the side of eliminating that regulation and that requirement for immigrants to this country? I don't think she would. You want to know why? Because if they were to change that and allow them in without the vaccines, I think Marjorie Taylor Greene would say, look at these dirty immigrants coming here and spreading diseases. They don't even have to get their vaccines when they come here. Now, I'm speculating. That's my guess as to what she would say. But I think that's a pretty solid guess as to what she would say. So immigrants are already required to have vaccines when they come to this country. The other thing is, in a lot of schools across the country, for public schools, it's mandatory the kids get the vaccine before they go to public schools because it's a public health issue. It's a regulation issue. So now listen again, you could agree or disagree with that. You could take, you know, individual freedom, liberty grounds and say, no, the government should never be able to tell me what I want to put in my body or, or not. If you want to make that argument, make that argument. But this idea that this, this whole new concept is unusual and new and wild, I don't really think that's true. I don't really think that's true. So yes, yeah, some other countries are like, we're opening up to travel and to tourists and to citizens, but you got to have your vaccine to come in here. Are you really going to blame another country for making that decision? Are you really going to blame them when we also mandate that immigrants have vaccines? When we also mandate that kids that go to schools have vaccines? I mean, listen, at the end of the day, the real conversation comes down to, are the vaccines good or bad? And I think a lot of far-right conservatives think, no, it's not good. And even a lot of lefties think, no, it's not good, because they don't trust big pharma. Now, I think it's, there's good reason not to trust big pharma, but I also think antibiotics work. And I also think modern medicine largely nails it. And I also think the vaccines work. You know, we basically, what, what do we eliminate? Polio, I think we nearly eliminated. There's a bunch of stuff because of the vaccine. So if you agree, if you realize that the vaccines do work, then, yeah, you want to get as many people vaccinated as humanly possible. And I, listen, I get it, I get it, you know, go talk to an older African-American and talk about the Tuskegee experiments. And yes, the idea, you, it really is a gross line to just allow the government to forcibly put stuff in your body. I get it. There are freedom concerns and whatnot. But when it comes to the vaccines in particular, I mean, they're good and they work. And the type of regulation that we're talking about with COVID passports, agree or disagree with it, it's not crazy. It's certainly not a crazy idea. We have mandatory vaccines for immigrants, mandatory vaccines for kids in schools. Um, I don't, again, I don't think the private companies are all going to decide you need the vaccine. I think they'll be fine with masks and stuff like that. Um, but it's certainly not both fascism and communism and corporate communism and every other negative word that she thinks she can think of. Okay, next. Next, next, next. Oh, where did my... Fuck. I dropped my little light changer. I need to get that before I continue. It's unacceptable that I don't have that. I desperately, desperately need that. Okay, I got it. I got it.
All right, now we're going to show you how CNBC does propaganda for the pharmaceutical companies. CNBC is a truly horrendous network. Uh, they're going to prove how terrible they are right here. This is one of the worst hosts on the network, who, by the way, is also a uh, climate science denier. He is going to whine and moan about how Big Pharma is being treated so unfairly in this whole COVID ordeal. I don't want to get on a soapbox, but, but Bernie, here I go. Bernie Sanders, multi-billion dollar pharmaceutical companies continue to prioritize profits by protecting their monopolies. I mean, Novavax was working for 30 years uh, on this vaccine. Moderna invested, I mean, hundreds of millions of dollars over the years in this messenger RNA platform. You have the company that you're on the board of, Pfizer, billions of dollars invested over time to, to get these things. If, if we don't allow some type of uh, profit to be earned on all that uh, time and, and money spent to develop these things, it, it, they're not, they're not going to do it anymore. And, and it's such a simplistic well, view that people like Bernie Sanders, but there was pressure from the WTO and the left to break the, these patents for these companies. That's amazing. Now, by the way, the guy who he's talking to is on the board of Pfizer. When he responds to what the host is saying, he tells a story about how, well, we've ran into similar issues in the past, like in the early 2000s, 2004, somewhere around there. You know, there was an issue with, like, HIV medicines, and they wanted to take away our patent for that to give HIV medicine to developing countries. And we stepped in because we were like, you can't do that because we care so deeply about the quality control of the medicine. And if we, you take, take away our patent, then they're going to be cheap knockoff medicines and people are going to suffer as a result of it. And we just care so much about the people. He unironically argues that. Us here at Pfizer don't want you to uh, take away our patent simply because we care about the victims of counterfeit medicine. My ass cheek, son, at least be honest. At least be honest. So the, the tweet that this guy's taking issue with is Bernie saying Big Pharma prioritizes profits over people. That's a fact. That's a fact. That's not debatable. You're trying to debate that? They're for profit. That's why they exist. And by the way, there's also lies in there when he says, oh, there wouldn't be any incentive to uh, make the medicines if you take away the profit and you take away the patents. And he says, Moderna invested hundreds of millions of dollars trying to create this. And you just want to take away their profits? Moderna got nearly $500 million from U.S. taxpayers. From US. So we pay for the creation of the medicine, and then they get a patent, they get intellectual property rights, and then they get to double charge us and price gouge us after the fact. Are you fucking kidding me? These guys are such corporate whores. They're complete sellouts. By the way, CNBC, this is everything you need to know about CNBC. In the lead-up, to the subprime mortgage crisis in the Great Recession in 2008. Every single day on CNBC, it was relentless wall-to-wall propaganda where they would invite on the CEOs of the big financial institutions, and one after the other, they would say, there's no downturn coming. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm bullish on this market. You should invest more money with us. Please, you should do that. I'm, I'm, we're the experts. We're the experts. Do you see the thing scrolling at the bottom of the screen? Isn't that professional? Do you see me wearing a suit and tie? Isn't that professional? Trust me. Give us more money. It's going to be totally fine. Everything's great. 
They did it day after day after day. There was like one voice on there who was correct. He's a libertarian guy by the name of Peter Schiff. They laughed at him every time. He said, I don't know. This seems like a bubble. This seems like a universe. They would laugh at him day in and day out. Wall-to-wall propaganda for corporate America and for Wall Street and financial institutions. And then when everything blew up, there was zero accountability. None of those people were left out of the room. None of those people were fired for sucking at their jobs and being wrong about everything. And here we are. Same exact thing. Oh, Bernie Sanders says Big Pharma cares about profit over people. Ridiculous. Where's the incentive to build the medicines if profit's not? Are you kidding me? Most of the research and development is done at universities with U.S. tax dollars. Human beings are always going to be curious and are always going to want to try to cure diseases, regardless of if some schmuck executive makes 15 or $30 million a year ripping people off. Are you out of your mind? Are you out of your mind? Nationalize big pharma. Nationalize the healthcare industry. Nationalize the health insurance industry. Nationalize big pharma. The conversation that we're having right now around the intellectual property rights and the patents in regards to the vaccines is psychopathic. It's, it's sociopathic. It's psychopathic. It's genocidal. If you say, no, I want the, uh, the for-profit health insurance, uh, for-profit, excuse me, big pharma companies to keep the intellectual property rights and to keep the patents, you know what you're doing? Dooming millions of people in the developing world to potentially getting COVID and potentially dying. It was India and South Africa who were like, can, can we have the formula for the vaccine so we could like vaccinate our people and protect ourselves from COVID? And Biden and all the big pharma people, hmm, let me think about that. That's a tough one. That's, should I save millions and millions of people or should I price gouge the shit out of everybody and not give you our intellectual property and our patents. This is an insane, this conversation alone proves how broken the system is and how it deeply, deeply needs reform. Think about what Jonas Salk said when he came up with, what was it, the polio vaccine? He was asked, why aren't you gonna patent this? His response was, he was indignant. His response was, would you patent the sun? Like, patent it? I wanna save people's lives. What am I gonna do? I'm gonna become a billionaire? from saving people's lives, and I'm going to withhold it from people who can't afford it? Are you out of your mind? And that's what this idiot is arguing for aggressively on CNBC. Smugly, condescendingly, you don't even understand. We need the profit motive in order to make this stuff work. Really? Then why is it that a lot of the research and development happens at universities with tax money, and then after the fact, Big Pharma swoops in, buys up the rights, and then charges you double? Why is that? Why is that the case? Why is that the case? Because you're full of shit. You're a fucking liar. And my guess is CNBC takes quite a bit of money from the big pharma companies. And he's talking to a fucking guy on the board of Pfizer. The whole system is corrupt. Let's bring on the oligarch douchebags getting rich off of people's pain and explain why getting rich off of people's pain is actually totally necessary and useful and great. Piss off, piece of shit. All right. Okay, next. Where are we going? Where are you going? Remember that song? Where do you go? I am no Superman. 
I have no reason for you. <laughs> I don't know how that goes. Anyway, all right. Uh, I am going to go to... Let's do the Biden North Korea story. I'm going to jump ahead to that. Here we go. So Joe Biden, uh, about a week ago, did his first press conference. And uh, I I missed this, but I wanted to cover it for you because I think it's really important. I guess he was asked about North Korea, and his response is lunacy. And here's a media segment on it, and then I'll give a rebuttal. Joe Biden used the first news conference of his presidency to put North Korea on notice that the U.S. would respond if the missile test continued. He told reporters that Wednesday's launch of two ballistic missiles violated U.S. and U.N. Security Council resolutions. The president did not explain what the U.S. might do about further provocations from North Korea, but the U.N. Security Council Sanctions Committee will be meeting in the hours ahead at the U.S. administration's request. Now, the president also left diplomacy on the table. Mr. Biden said Washington is willing to talk with Pyongyang if the goal is denuclearization, which North Korea has long resisted, of course. And South Korea's president is saying his country, the U.S. and the North, should resume talks. We get more now from CNN's Brian Todd. A warning from President Biden to North Korea's 37-year-old dictator, who just launched two sets of missiles within a few days. The latest, a test firing of ballistic missiles nearly 300 miles into the sea. There will be uh, responses if they choose to escalate. Um, We will respond accordingly. But I'm also prepared uh, um, for some form of diplomacy, Um, but it has to be conditioned upon the end result of denuclearization. But analysts tell us denuclearization is not in Kim Jong-un's playbook. What they want to talk about is potential interim freeze, potentially capping their program, and that's the maximum that they will go. They have said multiple times that they're not interested in denuclearization talks. The president was also asked about the broader North Korean threat. Former President Obama warned the incoming President Trump that North Korea was the top foreign policy issue that he was watching. Is that how you assess the crisis in North Korea? Yes. Experts say these missile launches are classic moves from the Kim regime, that the North Koreans love to greet new American presidents with shows of force, part intimidation, part bluster. It's a dodge and weave with specific goals in mind. Kim is sending the message that um, Joe Biden can't ignore him that uh, Biden has to come back to the negotiating table. Um, And from Kim Jong-un's perspective, um, he would like for Joe Biden to offer what Donald Trump appeared to be offering, which was a big deal. But a big deal never came to pass between Kim and President Trump, despite the fanfare of two summits and a high-profile meeting at the demilitarized zone in 2019 the first time a sitting U.S. president set foot on North Korean soil. This has been in particular a great friendship. There was correspondence, which included what Trump termed love letters between the two leaders. We met and we liked each other from day one. Kim did draw down his missile tests for an extended period, as he kept trying to leverage his relationship with Trump for concessions. But analysts say while Kim was courting Donald Trump, he continued to modernize his nuclear warheads and missile arsenals. They've been clearly perfecting weapons capable of hitting U.S. allies and U.S. bases uh, in the Pacific. 
me tell you what Kim Jong-un is doing. The message he's sending is, leave me alone. He's an authoritarian leader of a totally locked-down country. I don't mean locked-down in the COVID sense. I mean locked-down in the sense that isolated from the world. And um, he fears being toppled by the United States of America. That's what he fears. And so all of, like, the missile tests and the shows of force, that's him saying desperately, I have the ability to defend myself. Leave me alone. So this is not the way it's portrayed in the media and among a bunch of politicians that it's an aggressive offensive act. And next thing you know, maybe he'll attack Cleveland. Total bullshit. Or even the idea, oh, he'll attack our bases in the Pacific. He has the ability to do. He's not going to do. The whole point is, if you fuck with me, I have the ability to defend myself. Now, what I'm describing is not some crazy, cockamamie, insane, lefty, code pink theory. No, in fact, the intelligence agencies admit this in their more honest moments behind the scenes. They know. They know what's going on. And so I find the whole, like, moral panic over it and fear-mongering over this both silly but also terrifying because you worry what the U.S. is going to do. I, genuinely, I do not worry what North Korea is going to do. I worry what the U.S. is going to do. Because you heard Biden. He said, yeah, this is the top foreign policy issue. Really? It's the top foreign policy More than Iran. More than Iraq. More than Afghanistan more than al-Qaeda, more than the diplomatic issues with China or Russia or trade issues with China or Russia. Really? More than Pakistan? More than Saudi Arabia and Yemen, the genocide in Yemen? More than Syria? What are you talking about? It's the arrogance of the empire. So what Biden is saying is, oh, yeah, I'll meet with them, but it's conditioned upon denuclearization. In other words, you have to get rid of your nukes if we're going to meet. That's what he's saying. Why on earth would Kim Jong-un do that when he has, he learned from history, he learned from what happened to Gaddafi? Well, first, let's go to Saddam. The U.S. claimed, oh, he has weapons of mass destruction. We toppled him. Turns out he didn't have weapons of mass destruction. He had some weapons that we gave him, but he didn't have weapons of mass destruction. So we toppled Saddam over the weapons of mass destruction. Then what Gaddafi did is Gaddafi was scared. He goes, oh, my American friends. Oh, you're right. That Saddam guy's crazy. Anyway... Here, take all my nuclear weapons. See? I'm on your side. I'm on your team. We're allies, right? So he denuclearizes. Then we topple him anyway. And John Bolton even said it in the previous administration, said it out loud to the media as Trump was trying to negotiate some sort of a deal with Kim Jong-un. Bolton goes out there, and Bolton's like, yeah, we're going to use the Libya model. Going to use the Libya model? You just told Kim Jong-un, denuclearize, and then we're going to topple you. So why would he fucking denuclearize? That would be the, he would be the dumbest person on the planet. He sees what just happened with Iran. They created the U.S. and Iran. The U, actually, it's Iran and the global community had a deal. You will get sanction relief and get a whole bunch more money and a whole bunch more business. Your economy will open up to the world. Uh, we'll give you sanctions relief in return for you not having any nuclear weapons and the IAEA checking all the time and regulating you. They said yes. Then the United States pulled out of the deal and sanctioned them, even though they followed the deal to a T. So between the Libya example and the Iran example, Kim Jong-un would have to be the dumbest person on the planet to be like, yeah, I'm going to denuclearize. He would have to be, seriously, one of the dumbest people on the planet. So in other words, when given that context, I think these segments are abysmal. Because none of these CNN segments, they don't give you any of the context or the perspective or the history or the surrounding issues. 
obviously the deals we write aren't worth the paper they're written on. The deals we have with these countries, and other countries know that. So yes, stop portraying them as some sort of offensive threat or like the military, th- the military you know, exercises are terrible and scary and wrong. It's totally expected and it's totally defensive. So, I mean, listen, the real approach that you should take is try the exact opposite of what you've been trying all these years. Because I think if you can sort of invade culturally, that will pay dividends down the road. So in other words, sanctions relief, some sort of peace agreement, some sort of deal that we abide by. Like, again, this is a terrible example because the U.S. already pulled out of the Iran deal. But if you do an Iran deal, if you go back in the Iran deal and you do a North Korea deal that's like the Iran deal, um, or you're even more lenient in that deal, if you can open them up culturally and economically, that's how you begin to see it pays off in the long run. And, you know, it's highly unlikely you're going to go to war with some country that you've developed a neutral footing on. And so that would be my, my instinct would be to try to get to some sort of a neutral footing. And also, the more you get on a more neutral or favorable footing with them, then also the more you can impact their internal politics. And the guy's a terrible authoritarian And so you do want to reform the way he acts and the terrible way he treats his people with the hard labor camps and things of that nature. And so I think the best way to do that is fundamentally the opposite approach of what we've been doing. But this is doubling down on wrongness. And this is foreign policy is actually the area where I think Biden's been the worst so far. And this is another great example of it. Okay, next. So a Republican senator is going to rush to defend the rich from minor tax hikes while talking to Maria Bartiromo. Take a look. All right, Senator, real quick, this all points to this radical agenda, and we don't know how U.S.-China policy will change, but we do know that the spending is out of control. $1.9 trillion was called a COVID relief package. That was mislabeled. We know it was just a spending package. It was only 10% COVID-related. Now you're, you and your colleagues are talking about a $3 trillion spending plan. When are, we, when are you expecting to see taxes increased to pay for all of this? Soon, and the taxes won't pay for all of this. Uh, the motto of the Biden administration is, we can't spend too much. And at the rate they're going, we're going to run out of digits. Uh, he's talking $3 trillion on infrastructure. Uh, there will be money bills behind that. He is going to raise taxes dramatically. Uh, he's going to make tax policy on the basis of class warfare. That's not how you make tax policy. You make tax policy on the basis of sound economic principles. He's going to say we're going to raise the taxes on the rich because he really does believe that we're one tax increase away from prosperity. I predict it will have a profound impact, especially if he tinkers with capital gains and dividends. It will have a profound impact. I love every part of that. So it is incredibly dishonest to frame it like he framed it, where he says, oh, 
you're going to need taxes to pay for all this, and so tax hikes are coming. What he doesn't tell you, he hints at it, but he doesn't tell you, is that the tax increases are going to be all on the wealthy and corporations. And guess what? When you poll those issues, Americans agree with Biden and agree with the left. Raise taxes on corporations, raise taxes on the wealthy. So he doesn't say that because he can't say that because he knows it's unpopular. So what does he use? Uh, we're going we're gonna to do tax policy on the basis of class warfare. Good, because class warfare has been waged by the wealthy and corporations on regular people for decades. That's not my opinion. That's a fact. There was a RAND Corporation study that came out not too long ago, which found that, I forget whether it was 1974 or 1978, but from the mid-1970s until today, the rich have effectively stolen, the top 1% or even fraction of the top 1%, have effectively stolen $47 trillion from the bottom 90%. And this is in a variety of different ways. They've rigged the rules. They've beat back unionization. And so if you just kept the, wealth, the post-World War II wealth distribution and brought it to today, the bottom 90% would have $47 trillion more, which is the equivalent of about $1,144 extra per month for your life for everybody in the bottom 90%. That's how much class warfare has been waged. Did you know there's another report that came out about a year ago which found that for the first time ever, Billionaires were paying an effectively lower tax rate than the average worker. So we don't have a progressive tax system now. We have a regressive tax system. And they have, you know, they have a team of lawyers and people to find loopholes and deductions. So they get out of paying their taxes. They pay less than you do. Why is it that Mitt Romney, who made like $14 million just through investment income, he sat on his Mormon ass all day and did nothing. He made about $14 million through investment income. Why did he pay about 15% on that money, but somebody who works for a living, who's a construction worker and makes 70 grand or 80 grand a year, they pay more than 15% because we tax the Wall Street gambling at a lower rate. And this is exactly what numbnuts is defending. Oh, if you have capital gains rate raised, there's going to be a lot of problems associated with that. No, there's not. No, there's not. It's wonderful. That's what we need to do. That's what we should do. And then, of course, there's the deficit fear mongering. Oh, my God, trillions of dollars, we're going to run out of digits. Let me explain something to you. Right-wing economists have been predicting for the longest time a crisis in Japan brought about by their extreme debt. It's never come. Why has it never come? Because they have a relatively stable political system, secure political system, and they have their own currency. They control their own currency. So if you have a relatively stable political system and you control your own currency, the debt fears, inflation fears, largely bullshit. And if, they, if those right-wing economists were correct, there would have already been a long time ago a debt crisis in Japan, and it simply hasn't come. So this is the same shit here. Oh, my God, we don't have the money. We're going to run out of money. We're going to run. This idiot probably voted for Trump's tax cut in 2017, which added nearly $2 trillion to the deficit. He didn't care then. He doesn't care when it's endless military budgets. He doesn't care when it's Wall Street bailouts. You know? So, but when it's, when it's for infrastructure, when it's for the people, oh, my God, then, oh, we can't afford it. We're going to run out of digits. Oh, please. Ridiculous. So now here's the main point. Guys, there's a reason why you're not seeing much of this rhetoric, the deficit fear-mongering, the debt fear-mongering, um, and 
the, oh my God, tax hikes. There's a reason why you're not seeing this across the board with Republicans. Why? Because they know it's a losing argument. They know they're going to lose the argument. They know that, you know, when they fear monger about tax hikes, the response from Biden is, I'm not even raising taxes on anybody who makes less than 400000 What are you talking about? They know that. They know the deficit and the debt fear mongering is dumb because Trump just ran it up massively and they were cool with it. They voted for those packages. So that's why you've seen a lot more recently of the culture war nonsense. It's all in on Dr. Seuss. It's all in on Mr. Potato Head. It's all in on all that stuff because that's all they got. They got nothing on economics. They got nothing to help you. No positive program, no plan. So it's super ineffectual. Every now and then one of the idiots like this guy trots out the old talking points. They ring so hollow. And then they'll go right back to the Dr. Seuss stuff where they think they have a better argument. So pathetic, but what do you expect? Okay, next. All right, next, here we go. Minimum wage. New article came out on the minimum wage. I had to share this with you. This is incredible. This is from CBS News. The disconnect between Wall Street and Main Street has perhaps never been more glaring in the past year when the stock market hit new records even as tens of millions of people lost their jobs due to the pandemic. But it's part of a longer-term trend, with Wall Street bonuses surging 1,217% since 1985, or about 10 times the pace for the minimum wage workers during the same stretch. If the federal minimum wage had kept up with the same growth as Wall Street bonuses, the baseline rate would be $44, according to a new analysis from the Institute for Policy Studies, a left-leaning think tank that examines income and pay inequality. The baseline wage has been stuck at $7.25 for an hour for, excuse me, $7.25 an hour for more than 11 years, the longest period it's gone without an increase since it began in 1938. The typical bonus for a Wall Street employee jumped 10% last year to $184,000, the New York State Comptroller said on Friday which served as the basis for the IPS analysis. While there's been a push to increase the federal minimum wage, progress has so far proved elusive. The Biden administration's goal of including a $15 baseline wage in the American Rescue Plan was abandoned after resistance from some lawmakers and business groups and the parliamentarian, which they hid behind. So this number is incredible. This number is incredible. If the minimum wage kept up with productivity of workers, it would be about $23 an hour today. If it just kept up with inflation from 1968, it would be over $10 an hour today. And now we know if it kept up with the growth of Wall Street bonuses, it would be $44 an hour today. You know, I've given you guys these facts a million times on the minimum wage, and they really are astounding. And it's astounding that effectively Washington has ignored the stark reality to continue serving corporations and billionaires and screwing workers Because now people have caught on to just how screwed they are. People have caught on to the fact that this is the only developed country without paid vacation time by law. People have caught on to the fact that this is the only developed country without paid maternity leave by law. People have caught on to the fact that in some Scandinavian countries, they have basically universal collective bargaining. So almost everybody's in a union. And when everybody's in a union, they do such a good job looking after their workers that they don't even need a minimum wage that the minimum wage in some Scandinavian countries is way above and beyond what anybody's actually getting paid, the minimum wage here, because 
they make the equivalent of $30 or $40 an hour as the starting number. It truly is insane. In Australia, for, so there's people who say, well, we can't raise it because the unemployment rate's going to skyrocket because people can't afford to pay $15 an hour, so they're going to fire people who work for them, small businesses and, and whatnot. The minimum wage in Australia is about equal to $15 an hour. They have almost the exact unemployment rate we do. So it didn't lead to mass unemployment. That's just not true. And by the way, if you do fear that, there are other ways around it, like some sort of tax credit program for small businesses or subsidy program for small businesses that help the owners afford the same number of workers paying them $15 an hour. There are ways around it. There are ways around it. But instead, you have the politicians throwing their hands up, ah, we can't do it, as there are plenty of workers in this country who work full-time and don't make enough money to survive. That's a scandal. That's a huge scandal, just like it's a huge scandal that we're the only developed country without one version or another of a universal health care system, and so we have tens of millions of people without health insurance. 40,000 to 65,000 Americans die every year because they don't have access to basic health care. We're the only developed country where that's a problem. These things are not okay. We don't even have the basic bare minimum stuff. We don't have universal health care. We don't have free college. We don't have the paid vacation time by law. We don't have, we only have 6% of the private workforce is unionized. And we wonder why the middle class has been totally hollowed out and there is no real middle class anymore. We had, again, I'm going to make a point I said the other day, but I think it's really important. We know what a lot of the answers are to fix this country. They're relatively straightforward answers, relatively straightforward policy fixes, but we haven't done it. And it feels like we can't do it because of the corruption in the system. So even the simple solutions are totally ignored, and that's infuriating. But now you know. Here's another fact to add to the arsenal about how screwed the workers are. And we don't take no for an answer, and we keep fighting. And eventually we'll win on this front, but it's a long uphill battle. I know that. It's a long uphill battle. We've got to either get the money out of the system so it's not corrupt. That seems really difficult. Or, my favorite idea, do a direct democracy law at a federal level. So every time you vote in a presidential election, you vote on the top five political issues of the day and have that become law. And guess what? Most of the time, we're going to win if that's the system having a more direct democratic system, because even in Florida, where Donald Trump beat Joe Biden in the presidential election, 60% of them said, let's raise the minimum wage. So people are going to vote when you give them specific issues, they're going to vote in what they think is their, their own interest. And that's good. They'll legalize marijuana, they'll end the wars, they'll raise the minimum wage, and we'll win most of the time. You'll lose some every now and then, of course, but a lot of the times you'll win. So... Anyway, this is unacceptable, but who's really surprised? Okay. Final story of the day, y'all. Final story of the day. Of the day. Final story of the day. Here we go. Vox poll on billionaires. Let me set this up for you. Oh, wait. Did I miss? Oh, I did miss. I got two stories left. I'm sorry. Let me show you this Vox poll on millionaires. It has some interesting stuff in there. By a wide gap, 72% to 19%, voters polled say it was unfair that billionaires got wealthier during the pandemic, 72%. That conclusion is shared across all racial, partisan, socioeconomic, and other demographic groups. 
This unease is reflected in questions that speak to Americans' more generalized opinions about the top 1%, which were generally shared across the political spectrum. Only 23% of those polled said they consider billionaires to be good role models for the country, while 65% said they don't. Similarly, only 36% said they had generally positive feelings about billionaires, as opposed to 49% who said they did not. That's fascinating. Now, I will caution you, there is some contradictory stuff in the poll. Like, people, when they go on to talk about, like, solutions, then people are totally lost. They don't know what the answers are. And they even end up defending the concept of billionaires. Like, yeah, it's fine. Somebody should be able to become a billionaire. So there's still remnants of, like, you know, not a fully left ideology in the American people. But we've definitely moved more in the direction of people being skeptical of power, skeptical of billionaires, the fact that they got phenomenally more wealthy during COVID and everybody else is struggling, that was sort of a light bulb moment for Americans. And they were like, oh, oh, well, that doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem fair. That doesn't seem just. Yes. So what I take away from this poll is one very simple fact. People are on to the myth of meritocracy. Despite some other contradictory numbers in the same poll and, you know, they're not down the line left. But these numbers specifically from this poll show me that people are onto the fact that we don't live in a meritocracy, that it's not as simple as the harder you work, the further you go. I think there was a time in American history where people would have believed that. Now, I don't have the data to back it up, or I haven't seen data to back that up, but there was a time when the system was a little bit more fair, the golden age of economic expansion comes to mind, where we had a thriving middle class, and if you ask people, I think they would... They would articulate this idea that, yeah, if they're a billionaire, they just work really hard, and that's how they got there. Now, people are like, I don't know about all that, man. That seems a little ridiculous. How can you really earn a billion dollars? What does that even mean, to earn a billion dollars? You earn it in the context of a market system, and in order to get there within the market system, you need to be the most shameless. You need to be willing to exploit workers to a phenomenal degree. I mean, listen, this makes the argument or unionization, for example. This makes the argument for larger companies being more democratically controlled. You know, uh, perhaps I differ from some lefties where I think the smaller the company, the smaller the business, I'm not offended by the traditional hierarchy, as long as there's regulations and rules and people are treated fairly, of course. But when you get to the bigger corporations, it does feel like you need to have something to fix the balance of power where there's either got to be unionization across the board or there's got to be, they got to be worker-owned co-ops and more democratic control, some sort of market socialist approach. Um, because, yeah, the bigger the company gets, generally, the more exploitation there is, and that's unacceptable. You know, you have to mitigate the downsides of that through policy. So, but yes, people are onto it. Some of the hardest working people I've ever met, ever, were living in poverty. There's a guy new in high school, worked two jobs, still was probably living in poverty, barely afford rent. One of the hardest working people I ever knew. Worked like six, six days of the week, nonstop. And I remember watching how much he went through and thinking like, Jesus Christ, there's got to be a better system than this. There's got to be. This guy, need, they need to, minimum wage needs to be higher or unionization needs to be across the board or something because this is not, this is not okay. You know, in this country, we sort of define ourselves through our economic life. Um, that becomes a crucial part of your identity. But 
we got to like, we got to think about a new way of doing it. At the very least, tweaks to fix the system, but more, you know, substantial fundamental reform is necessary. And again, what the pandemic is doing is showing us that people are sort of on to billionaires. And by the way, it's billionaires and corporations who really run the system, just so you know. I mean, you guys already know that. But Wall Street really runs the show. The military-industrial complex really runs the show. Politicians are largely puppets of the people with the real power. And the real power is the capital. And so billionaires and corporations really are the ones who run the show. And as soon as people realize it's not a meritocracy, they didn't just earn it to get there. They're not just better than everybody else. As soon as people realize that, it's game on, son, and it's time for real reform. Okay. Now the final story of the day, Mitch McConnell. There was this incredible story in, uh, in the New Yorker that I want to share with you. They're talking about Mitch McConnell in a secret meeting here. They say, a recording obtained by the New Yorker of a private conference call on January 8th between a policy advisor to Senator Mitch McConnell and the leaders of several prominent conservative groups, including one, one run by the Koch Brothers Network, reveals that participants worry that the proposed election reforms garner wide support, not just from liberals, but from conservative voters too. They're talking about HR1 or S1, the Democrats' election reform bill. The speakers on the call expressed alarm at the broad popularity of the bill's provisions, calling for more public disclosure about secret political donors. Participants conceded that the bill, which would stem the flow of dark money, from such political donors as the billionaire oil magnate Charles Koch, was so popular that it wasn't worth trying to mount a public advocacy campaign to shift opinion. Instead, a senior Koch operative said that opponents would be better off ignoring the will of American voters and trying to kill the bill in Congress. Holy cow, what an admission that is. That is out of this world. So what they're saying is, Listen, we ran the numbers, we did the polls. This bill is phenomenally popular. It's like 80% of Democrats support it, strong majority of independents support it, and even a small majority of Republicans support the bill. This is a Democratic bill, Democratic election reform bill. They're like, we can't even fight it. We're going to lose the propaganda battle, even if we're relentless and even if we go all out. So what do you want to do? Just don't say anything about it and kill the bill anyway. So literally ignore the will of the voters. Don't even address it. Don't even try to make a counter argument for your side. Just as quickly as you can and as quietly as you can kill this thing. I give you the Republican Party. Literally on a call with billionaire donors. And the billionaire donors are giving them their marching orders. This bill's too popular. We hate it. Kill it. Don't even mount a public response. Just kill it. Exactly how you thought politics works in this country is how it works in this country. Smoke-filled backroom dealings with corporations and billionaires giving the marching orders to their puppets. Mitch McConnell, the Republican Party. Now, by the way, let's talk a little bit about H.R. 1 and S. 1. H.R. 1 is, here's what's in H.R. 1. There's so many provisions, and I'll give you just some of them. There's automatic voter registration, which is a no-brainer. We should already have that. H.R. 1 makes Election Day a federal holiday. Again, that's a no-brainer. We need that. It brings paper ballots for election integrity. Definitely need that. It bans gerrymandering. Again, no-brainer. Totally need that. It makes the vice president and the president show 10 years of tax returns by law, um, and it imposes stricter limits on lobbying and super PACs. 
So there's more transparency and there's stricter limits. So that's, that's the gist of what's in HR1. And so one of the key provisions is they're talking about, well, billionaires can't really buy elections like they used to or can't really buy them as easily as they used to. And they're like, oh, we hate that because we're puppets to you, so we got to kill it. And the Cokes hate that because it limits their influence, so they got to kill it. But again, the admission of like, who cares what the people want? That's everything. And it's, I mean, it's really not a surprise, but to have them say it is a surprise. Because when you look at like gun reform, for example, background checks poll like 90% and we can't pass background checks. They're just overriding the will of nine out of 10 Americans. Even the majority of Republicans are like, I want this. And they're like, yeah, we don't because we represent the NRA, so fuck off. So this is crazy. Now, by the way, they were, they were testing ways to fight back against the bill. The first idea they came up with is, what if we threw AOC's name in there? Even when they threw AOC's name in there, the Republican voters were still like, yeah, I still kind of like the bill. And then, I love this one, this is everything, because it shows the dirty tricks. They said, what if we tried to link this to cancel culture? That's all they got is the culture war bullshit. No, everything is cancel culture. That's all they got. And even then, voters were like, yeah, I sort of hate billionaires, and I'm for this legislation. So, there you have it. Openly undemocratic, and that says absolutely everything. All right, guys. Out of time, baby. Out of show. Love y'all. I'll see you on Crystal Kyle and friends. Have a good rest of your week. Peace.